We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Let me tell you, it's been a crazy month for sure. A lot of conversation around critical race theory. You got folks trying to rewrite history. I even heard someone say that the three-fifths compromise was so that it could end slavery. Imagine that. But the biggest news this month, I think, might have been Bill and Melinda Gates getting a divorce. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll tell you, that one hit me kind of hard. Um, why? Why? It, like, are you like you sensitive to marriage? Nothing wrong with that. But but why did it hit hard? Um, I mean, I don't know that I'm sensitive to marriage, but you always have like those celebrity couples that you root for. And they're both such like so nerdy and geeky, but like completely committed to the planet. And they've done so much amazing work around the world. Um, they're always someone I was really rooting for. Yeah, well, I do believe that they absolutely love one another because I read somewhere that they didn't even have a prenup. So like literally they are splitting things as best as you possibly can in an amicable way. Uh, someone said that he just purchased a $43 million beach home. He has a 100 and something million dollar home in Washington, a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm sure she has stuff. And my hope is that, you know, again, when they go through that process, that we don't lose some of that ingenuity, that zest, that desire that Bill brings to the equation, that Melinda brings to the equation. I hope that doesn't disappear through this trial that they are going through. You know, I mean, and and we can really see that impact that Microsoft has had in my community, in the disability community, right? And, and you've heard me say this, Torin, before. I've been, over the years, really, really hard on Microsoft because their focus in terms of hiring was related to autism and, and neurodiversity. And as a person who is neurodiverse but also has mental illness, I really felt like that sent the wrong message, um, both as employer, consumer, and just humanity, like why ignore the rest of us? Um, However, right, over the last few years, I have seen the Office Suite, um, and, and I know you're a Mac user, so I don't know if you use Office on your Mac, but almost start to idiot-proof accessibility for through so many of, of the tools, right? Whether it's PowerPoint, Teams has automatic closed captioning, and all these amazing accessibility tools built in, right? but we just have to use them and think about using them. And so this week, um, Jenny LeFleury, um, Microsoft's chief disability officer, um, came forward and they announced an, an initiative, excuse me, to close the disability divide, a five-year initiative to um, look into gaps and resources and opportunities for people with disabilities, both in um, poor and underserved communities and through STEM work, uh, as well as increasing the hiring that they're doing in the totality of our community. 
Yeah, love that. And actually, you know what what she said, she being Jenny Lay Fleury, she said that disability is just a part of being human. Yes. Like, it's frankly a bit nutty to me that we don't talk about it in general society anywhere near as much as we should. And it's the biggest untapped talent pool out there. And what happens when you build for the margin? You build in a way that brings more individuals into the equation. Like I think about how many people have complained about some of the the focus around people with disabilities. I know that you probably have a bit of an issue with how much focus has been done on people that are neurodiverse versus maybe mental illness, uh, mental illness versus maybe that with a physical disability. I know that that tends to be one of the arguments that you raise a lot. But when we build for the margins, we do a far better job of bringing people into the equation. And quite frankly, Jay, I don't even think we've gone far enough. Like I'd love to see, although I don't go into grocery stores that much now, I think I've been in one twice since COVID started last year, but I'd love to see in grocery stores, braille type um, aisles so that people with disabilities can experience the shopping differently than they experience it today. Right. I mean, and absolutely. And and we're to this point in the conversation where I think we as a community just have to be blunt that if you're not building for us, you're not building for the largest consumer base, you're not building for the largest diversity talent pool, you're not building for a massive economic and voting block. Um, and it's not OK. I, I don't care um, if you don't want to think about it right? That's not the world that we live in anymore. You don't get to not think about us and not include us. And I think the the thing from the article that Jenny said that I like the most is um, in terms of development, right? Is that people with disabilities should be included in design from the get-go. We should never be having conversations about remediation on accessibility and usability going forward, it should be a part of design for all future products. And that includes talent acquisition products, how you apply for a job, how you're graded for a job, how you get an interview um, in its totality. Yeah, they actually uh, dropped a five-year plan. They have two initiatives that really bubble to the top. The first of which is the creation of a low-cost assistive technology fund to improve the access to technology solutions for people with disabilities. And then the second uh, of which is a collection of partnerships with six North American universities to better support students with disabilities who are pursuing STEM educations. So I think that Microsoft is not just making an announcement, but that they are absolutely being committed. Five years will you know, move at a, a, a I guess a rather quick clip but the point yep. is they put a stake in the ground. They said that this is important and they have at least committed funds, resources, headcount and other to such for that period of time. And I like that. Yep. And last thing on this, um, in October, and I didn't even even know this, they released Microsoft released their disability hiring numbers uh, and they have over six percent of their working population to be people with disabilities. To my knowledge, the highest behind them is probably like Prudential and, and or a Pepsi around like four or 5%. So that number is, is absolute credit and 
to the work that's been done to be inclusive of talent with disabilities who are comfortable saying who they are to their employer. So let's let's go, Microsoft. Absolutely. And this week we have a guest. And before we get into our guests, I just want to remind each and every one of our listeners that it is not too late to celebrate within your workplace a number of dates um, that have you know happened. So even if the date has passed, uh, the five that I made mention of are Asian Pacific uh, American Heritage Month, uh, Jewish American Heritage Month, Mental Health Awareness Month, Military Appreciation Month. And let me tell you, fun fact, when I first started doing uh, diversity and inclusion consulting, the first date, one of the first dates that I amplified was Military Appreciation Month. But to show my naivety, I didn't know anything about the other reasons why May was was May. And, and so it's only been over the course of the last several years that I've learned how really deep some of these months go in terms of recognizing audiences that are often overlooked uh, and under-resourced, if you will. And then last but not least, this is Older Americans Month. Now, I hesitated on that one because a couple of, uh, <laughs> she's laughing already. She knows where I'm going. A couple of episodes yep. ago, uh, we had like a little bit of a snafu and Jay thought that I was calling her older. And I had to kind of claim that and own that for myself. Mm-mm. One, I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> Two, I was kind of making a soft reference about me. And so I'm happy at 52 that this is Older Americans Month. I'm not old. I'm just older and still pretty, <laughs> pretty fly. Uh, so sis, listen, unobtainable is a word that we use. And for me, I say unobtainable removes the efficacy of almost any sentence that also includes the words diversity or progress. We'll take a quick break, run an ad from Jobvite, and then come back with our incredible guest. Really quick before Torin and I hop back into the episode, have you heard about the new Jobvite? The social recruiting innovator is now the end-to-end TA suite leader, helping TA teams attract, engage, hire, onboard, and promote the talent they need to succeed. But built specifically for talent acquisition professionals, the Jobvite Talent Acquisition Suite delivers an unmatched depth of capabilities from AI to DNI, recruitment marketing to applicant management, new hire onboarding, employee referrals, internal mobility, all with next-gen analytics to help you prove the value you deliver to your organization. Whatever your recruiting challenge, Jobvite has a solution. Visit jobvite.com slash C-A-T-K today. Again, jobvite.com forward slash C-A-T-K. Now let's get back into the show. All right. Awesome. So listen, uh, I had the ability and the pleasure of being invited to be a guest on her show. And so we kind of like went back and forth via email. Um, There's a person on our two person team who may have dropped the ball a little bit on the scheduling, if you will. But we got her. Are we doing this? Really? Hold on. Hold on. I just didn't send the link. It was on the calendar. Come on. (laughs) True. It it was on the calendar. It was on the calendar. But see, now I wouldn't have called her out. You all would have never known which of the two 
did it had what well, that's what i said a two-person <laughs> team i said team but but what we have is a guest and we are excited because she's doing some beautiful meaningful work and this week we get to introduce all of our listeners to the voice of deanna singh she's a business consultant a speaker a podcaster as i mentioned earlier who is internationally recognized for her work in leadership diversity equity and inclusion. Now, Deanna, I got to tell you, I don't believe it was a TED Talk, but the first thing that I saw of you, it was probably two years or so ago, you were doing a talk. And what struck me is when you made the references to your family. So we absolutely thank you for joining us here on Crazy and the King as a guest. How are you? I am wonderful and so excited to be here with you. I, I just love everything about what you're talking about, how you're talking about it, and, and the way you come and turn. You're one of my favorite guests. Don't tell everybody else, but you're one of my favorites. So it's an honor to be able to be here on your <laughs> show, too. <laughs> no doubt. And my introduction was brief, and Jay is going to get into the conversation as well. But what would you like listeners to know about you in addition to the topical picture that I painted for them. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think I really love about the work that I do and the spaces that I get to occupy is that I'm in a lot of different spaces doing this work. So I actually am the chief change agent for a company we call Flying Elephant. And Flying Elephant has four brands that fit into the company's uh, umbrella. The, the first is Uplifting Impact, which is where we do a lot of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. But then I also wrote a book called Purposeful Hustle. And so we do a lot of leadership development with people who are trying to find their purpose and then trying to figure out how they can work in that space to make the world a better place. And then the other two companies are Story to Tell Books, which is a children's book imprint that puts out positive images of children of color. We really think that all of our children should be represented in our, our literature. But unfortunately, right now, children of color make up more than 50% of our school-aged children are represented in less than 14% of books. So we're out there trying to change that narrative. And the last company is Amadula. So uh, if you don't know what that is, or your <laughs> listeners, if that's a new word, a, a doula is something somebody who helps birthing people before, during, and after labor. Um, and so in that role, we started a company called Birth Coach Milwaukee, which is my hometown. And unfortunately, one of the places that has some of the highest disparities in birthing outcomes. And what the research shows is if you introduce a doula or midwife, you can eliminate those disparities up to 100%. And so our company has a one-to-one -one model for every person who can pay full price. We can then provide services to a person who otherwise could not afford it. So my days are like, whoa, right? I can wake up in the morning, present to a couple hundred people, you have to, you know, work on some book stuff and then deliver a baby. <laughs> Jay, I mean, how do you compete with that? Um, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't. Oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, I, I mean, I got that silly, you know, disability solutions and I got you. So okay. yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated because you, you raised two incredible data points for us to, we could latch on and we can have an entire hour long conversation. The representation of black and brown students in public schooling and the lack of representation and seeing that imagery inside of books, love that. And then I know what black women, brown women are going through in terms of healthcare, you know, um, just all throughout the healthcare system. And so the fact that you are focused on the birthing portion of such, which is beautiful in and of itself, we could latch on to either one of them. I'm wondering, how did you get this combination of offerings, consulting, book writing, um, 
uh, being the doula. And how did you get this combination? I'm going to tell you two things, okay, about this. The first is I truly believe that my purpose is to shift power to marginalized communities. That is my heart. That is what I wake up in the morning thinking about is how I determine whether or not my day was successful. At the end of the day is how I make decisions. So that is my guiding force. So if you look at the companies that we operate, you'll see that that is a theme that runs through all of them, right? That is therefore the companies uh, has, has been has been taken on as the company's mission and all of them show up in a different way to do that, but that's all of them. But the other thing that's going on behind the scenes here, the other M that's happening here is that when I'm in a situation and I see something that hurts my heart, right? So when I see and I'm reading these articles or I'm doing and I see something that hurts my heart, my my way of dealing with it is to think about where can I serve? So does that mean showing up for another organization? Does that mean supporting another leader? Does that mean or does that mean that I need to break or build something? And so each one of these companies really was in response to feeling like where I could have the most impact, and it's not the only thing I do in those various areas, right? But where I could have the most impact was putting an offering into the world. And so that is the, I mean, they all started in you know different ways. They all have their own origin story, but that is one of the threads that pulls them all together, build or break, right? Because there's just some things that are completely unacceptable. Yeah. And so I'm going to make an assumption that that's sort of the underlying theme of your book, Purposeful Hustle. And I love it. I mean, the, the, you know, that's just kind of how I get through the day too, right? Not in, not in any way, the way that you do it, but, you know, was it your own lived experiences? Was it something that was specific to you that said it's time or was it just your heart saying, I can't deal with these injustices anymore and I have to take action? I think it, you know, was a culmination, you know, effect. So Torin talked about my family. I it, it probably was the TED talk that you saw uh, before. And one of the big things that I think I realized growing up in the home that I, I grew up in was the fact that and this was like one of the things that was really like, nobody had to say it. We learned it because we, people did say it, but we didn't have to hear it, right? We learned it because of the actions that the people around us took was that you don't measure your own success by how well you're doing. You measure your success about how well your community is doing, right? Those around you are doing. And so I think that one of the the things that has always been just, a part of how I move in the world and the way that I see things in the world has always been this idea of what does it look like for those people that I love? What does it look like for the communities and the spheres of influence that I occupy? And I think that that has been, you know, kind of the driving force because when I think about all the areas that we do work in, I am a a woman of color. I am a mother. I am an educator. I am, right? Like these are spaces that, I've had direct impact on, but that's not even the most important thing. I've actually been able to see those I love be impacted by these things. And so I think that that's the other, that's the draw, right? Like that's the pull. That's how I, how I found myself here. Let me get closer to the culture. Yes. You're not from Milwaukee or you may be from Milwaukee, but your parents are not from Milwaukee. So give our our listeners a bit of the backstory of your parents. And and then my immediate question to that, immediate question to that is, you don't hesitate to say, I'm a woman of color. Is that the way that most from your parents' country identify, or do they move through this world 
differently? Yeah, so I'm biracial. So my mom, her family is from McGee, Mississippi, small little community. She's uh, black. Her family moved up to Milwaukee um, because my grandfather had work on the railroad. So followed that work all the way up until we got to the north side of Milwaukee. And my father is from a very small village in Punjab, India. So he is a Sikh American, first uh, person actually from the entire village to come to America. And so they have this really unique, right, uh, marriage. And, and you think about when they got married too, they actually decided to get married after just knowing each other for three months and neither of them could speak the same language. They didn't have the same culture. They didn't have the same religion. They hadn't grown up with the same kind of experiences. So you think about literally all the differences, right, that, that can be made up in that world. And my parents this year are celebrating 42 years of marriage. I was the first child. Uh, and so for me, I, I literally just got to watch my parents build this bridge together. I, I, I like to, you know, say I got to dance on that bridge and twirl on it and jump <laughs> up and down and test its strength and bring other people on and play, you know, just do all the things. So I got very, very comfortable on in, in being in a space before I was where people tried to teach me that that wasn't um, normal that that wasn't possible, right? That this East and West didn't really go together and they didn't fit and they didn't, they, they, they were going to be opposites. Right. And, and they could, and so I, I grew up understanding like what it means to have two religions and go to church and go to Gudwara and eat roti and have, you know, greens. And I mean, I just grew up with that fluidity. And I think that that was just a critical component of, of who, of who I am. So it's really interesting, this question about identity that you ask as the follow-up question, right? Like why and how do I identify? I actually identify as black. So one of the things that I think is important to understand, especially when it comes to identity, is that people get to decide what their identities are, right? Like that, that is a part of, of the process. And some of it is that, it means a two-way street, like let's, let's be for real, right? Some of it is handed to you. But there's also a component of it where you get to decide how how you identify. So primarily, I, I identify as Black. I also identify as Asian American. And, you know, a lot of my earlier life, people would say to me, um, well, what are you? Well, which one? Which one do you, you know, this and that? And I always felt the pressure to be able to say one over the other. Now, the reason why I would say that I more often identify as a Black woman is because that's the way people perceive me. It's also, uh, you know, a, a community. I, I've spent a lot of time in the Black community. I've done a lot of work in the Black community. I really appreciate my heritage in the Black community, but that is not in opposition to, that is not an uh, either or to me, because I've done the same in the Asian American community. I'm a, I do a lot of keynote speaking in the Asian American community. I do a lot of advocacy work in the Asian American community. I do write, I mean, one of the children's books is about wearing a, a cloth crown or wearing a turban. I, you know, I've executive produced a whole show in, in the sea. So I think one of the things that I've had to work at, and this really came through experience, through trial, through error, through some painful, you know, moments, was that I wasn't going to accept this notion that I could had to choose one or the other, that I could show up fully as both. Um, and I could, and there's different spaces and different places where I know that having those voices and having that multiplicity of voices is actually the thing that gives me the ability to meet my purpose, right? It gives me the ability to shift that power to marginalized communities in ways that makes me really unique. And so embracing that. 
I'm going to let Julie jump in. Well, not let Julie jump in. <laughs> I want Julie to jump in, but I don't want to say I'm struggling, but something that really stands out for me again is I- I'm wondering, let's go back to your father's village. Mm-hmm. So you just taught me something that you identify as Black and Asian. Do they identify as Asian? I know it's a caste system. It's a little bit different. They discuss inclusion and intersectionality and, you know, race. It's always, not always, it's a different discussion there. But I'm very curious as to if you could provide a bit of observation and take us closer to that portion of who you are. Because this conversation around black and white, it always is at the top. I'd like for us to get beyond black and white and let's get closer to that side of your your culture. Maybe you can elaborate on how they identify, how they talk about it uh, in your father's village and country. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that where my personal knowledge comes from has a lot to do with the immigrant community in America, because I've spent a considerable amount of time um, in India, but almost exclusively with family, right? So almost exclusively sort of in a familial context. Whereas here, I've had more experience of being able to see how people move in in the world in America. And I think that one of the primary like things that is troublesome or not troublesome, but, you know, can be um, a point of mm, something they might wrestle with, right? is this identity issue. And I think we see this in a lot of immigrant, in a lot of immigrant populations, but this identity issue over, am I American or am I Indian? And and where do those things play out and how, and where am I being asked or forced in some instances to make a decision between the two of them? And so I think that, you know, one of the things that I grew up really experiencing, especially as a first generation uh, immigrant was this, this, sense of we don't want we like Deanna we want you to know your culture and also we feel this pressure that in order for you to succeed you have to be able to also understand uh, the American culture and you have to to some degree assimilate and the tension between those two things right the the, the pure tension like I would you know speak in Punjabi uh, to my family and we could do that here but if we were out they wanted me to speak in English right like what what does that look like right Th- those kinds of things um and I think that that's really that was really probably the biggest contradiction or tension you know that I experienced in my own personal life Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting. And Tor and I was actually pondering the same question um, as in terms of, of the identity, because I've always made a distinction between Indian Americans and, and Asian Americans. So, you know, more broadly, that might just be something that I learned. Um, but when you're talking about, right, or am I black? Am I, am I Asian American? Where do I fit in this world? As a, as a member of two marginalized communities, how often did you feel that whether it's society or each other or business that you were being pitted almost against your two against your two communities? Uh, I always say that we are as diverse communities um, being taught to fight for an ever smaller piece 
of the pie while the majority, which I am also a part of, um, take more and more and then say, you guys figure it out. Um, Was that common in your growing up or was it more unified? Oh, no, absolutely. We I, There were so many different instances where uh, those two things were pitted up against each other. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. So one of the um, things that happened when I was a child is I was one of the first people in my elementary school that was a, a kid of color, any kind of color, right? Like, I, I think I was actually, I might have been the first child in the school. And so that came with it a whole variety of different experiences. But one of the things that happened is I had a teacher who would refuse to call at me. And I loved raising my hand in class. And I loved being, you know, to talk. And I went back and I told my mom that this was happening. And, you know, my mom was like, no, it's just in your head. You're being dramatic, Deanna. But she came to the school and stood in the hallway and watched this teacher with nobody else in the in the room, watch this teacher over and over again, not call on me, right? Not respond to me. He had put me in the back corner to the point where, I mean, I was in sixth grade and I loved being in school. You don't understand, like I I love school. So this was never like a, you know, and I started skipping class, right? And he never said anything, didn't tell anybody, didn't do, and by skipping class, like I would be sitting in the hallway listening because I couldn't take the pain of feeling like I was just invisible. I'd rather sit in the hallway and hear what was going on because he was actually a great teacher, instead of being in the classroom and just being looked over, right? Now, my mom's takeaway from this experience was, you know what, when it's time for you to go to middle school, I'm not gonna show up. I'm gonna send you to school with your daddy. Now, why did she do that? And what was the thought process behind this? The thought was, if you go to school and they think that you are African-American, they're gonna treat you one kind of way. If you go to school and they think that you're Asian, they're gonna treat you a different kind of way. Right. Whether she was right or wrong or, you know, that all of that could be debated, but it had been impressed upon her enough. Right. And she wanted to be in a position where she could set me up for the greatest amount of success that she felt like her identity and her showing up would actually be a detriment. Now, you all don't know my mother, but there is no world in which my mother is a detriment. There is no world in which she is nothing but an asset. But for her to have that, right, and have that burden, and then for us to be, how hard, I can't even imagine as a mother, how hard that is to be in a moment where you think that you could you could hurt the potential success of your student or that your child is being treated less than because of, of your identity. And, and so there were very real conversations with us in, in our family about what the perception was and and where and how the world might perceive me based on what what box they put me in. And there's you know, the opposite it's amazing too. to me. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Deanna. Go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say there's the opposite too, right? So then there's the opposite. I, I had it the other way too, where uh, you know, it's more along the lines of being American or being, you know, a, an immigrant. Where my dad would say, you know what, Mm-mm, you're going to go to that thing with your with your mom. I don't want them to come with the notion that you don't that you don't know how you're supposed to act, or you don't know what's supposed to, or you don't know the culture, or you don't know this and that. Like I'm not going to show up in that space because. So I didn't just see it one direction; I saw it both directions, and it was a really it was it, it was a learning experience for me, but it was also a very painful thing because my parents. I mean. I have so much love and respect for my parents. And that's a hard thing to watch. Yeah, I'm going to get into the work that you're doing at Uplifting Impact. But real quick, I just want to comment that that phrase model minority was present back then. 
Oh, yes. Not not dating you, not aging you. But when we have these discussions, it, it's important. And I'm so glad that we spent time here and not so much on what people could just simply glean from the Internet as it relates to who and how wonderful you are. The, the fact that that model minority uh, phrase, it may not have been called that then, but that's exactly what it is. And now we're trying to divorce ourselves from that. And there are too many white folks that are struggling with that. There are too many black folks that are struggling with that. There are too many people with disabilities and Latina, Latino, uh, uh, Latin, Latina uh, individuals that are struggling with that. Muslims struggling with that. You know, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing, but I'm smiling, thinking about your experience in public school. And I did a couple of weeks ago uh, a clubhouse uh, conversation, uh, which I do every Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern. Shameless plug. Uh, we did a conversation and and it was around, you know, black and brown students experiences in public school. I'm sorry, in private schools. We think that the issue is in public schools, yet a lot of these families are struggling in private school settings where they are spending twenty, thirty thousand dollars. You said that the student the the instructor didn't call on you. So I, I can't tell you how many IG posts I've seen of black students who said exactly mm -hmm. the same thing. Let's get into your work at Uplifting Impact. It's monumental. It's big. You do conferences, you speak, you train. Talk to our listeners a bit about the work that you are doing as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging and shifting that relationship with power. Well, thank you so much uh, for that. We do a lot of different things. I mean, one of the the big things that we're doing right now is we have a How to Be an Ally Summit. That summit we host a couple of times a year. The The next one is going to be October 4th through the 6th. We're almost, uh, I think we're 25% sold out. Uh, so we're imagining we'll be sold out again. So if you're interested, it's a great three-day summit. We really go deep. It's awesome for teams. So we want to make sure that we're creating accessible points for organizations of all sizes and really all over the world. So that's one big thing. Another big thing uh, that we do is a lot of coaching, training, consulting. You know, over the course of the last 12 months, we've talked to over 75,000 people in over 30 countries. So we go deep in this work and, and with a lot of different organizations. Um, one of the things that we have done as a result of some of that work is we actually have stepped in as loaned DEI leaders. So we have a program where we can come alongside you. It's a little bit more robust than just our consulting, where we literally come alongside you as a team member to help get your programs off the ground and, and to get people moving. And one of the other really big, in addition to the podcast, which we also, here's my shameless plug, every week we have a podcast, Uplifting Impact. would love uh, to have you there too, where you talk to leaders about these areas of diversity, equity, inclusion. But a couple of big, exciting things that are also coming up on the horizon uh, in, a, in a few weeks or so. We're not exactly sure the, the exact date, um, but pretty soon I wrote a book for American Girl and that book is going to be coming out uh, this summer sometime. So that's Mattel's American Girl brand. And it is actually their Smart Girls Guide in that series. So it's a diversity, equity, and inclusion book in the Smart Girls Guide series, which is very exciting. Uh, the other thing that's happening is I actually am writing a book for Penguin Random House. And so that, um, that book is going to be called Action Speak Louder. It's going to come out in 2022. So we're, we're thinking probably spring of, of 2022. So send me all all kinds of good vibes because 
getting getting the final touches on that right now. Um, but that book is focused on helping organizations move beyond just talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but taking action. And what does it mean to take action and to and to really live in this space? So. Those are just a few of the exciting things that we have going on and, and some of the work that we're doing. Yeah, I'm smiling because, um, you know, I know Jay is probably thinking in some of, uh, of a similar vein as I. I love that we are sharing our platform with you. Like we both, we all do this work. I'm happy that we are sharing the platform with you. I am given that... Uh, Giving honor to God, as they would say in the black church, she said, I don't reach 75,000 people. I'm sitting over here mentally like, all right, I did this keynote, that keynote, this talk, that talk, this talk, that talk, another talk, and still ain't reached 75,000 people. So hats off to you. Congratulations on all that you are doing. I absolutely love that. Um, the book, the book deals, you know, which one has been the, the more of a challenge for you to, to draft? You know what? Both of them have been just a joy. I, I let me be true here too. Like there are definitely moments, particularly right now where I'm trying to get those last, you know, this last run through. I'm like, please come on, Deanna, you can do it. Cause writing is hard. Writing is not, a, <laughs> not writing is not easy. For some people I know it is easy for me. It is, it's hard. I like to, you know, to, to get the ideas down and get them in an order and, you know, do all of that. I mean, my problem is I probably have seven books that need to be now trimmed down, right? Like that's the, that's the problem. I have have too much. um, So, you know, trimming it down, but that's Well, can I get one of them? Why don't you just give me one? (laughs) You want it? Just give me one. one. (laughs) Send me my notes notes folder. You can have it. We can do like a co-op. Die. We can do the ghost writing style. Yeah. I mean, because I hate yes. writing. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It's, no, it's so it's tiring. Not happening. It's so tiring. You know, you could get to the end of the day and you're like, I just wrote all day, but I wrote, you know, 25,000 words or whatever it is. And I'm like, I haven't moved for eight hours, but I am exhausted. So yes, just to be clear, it is, it's hard. It is hard work. Um, but the joy of it is that it's two spaces that really pull my heart. The first, you know, really being able to pull my heart in writing for children, because I do believe that there is so much power in just giving people the fluency and the language that they need in order to have these conversations. How much easier would our jobs be if people weren't afraid to have conversations, right? If people weren't afraid to have, it it would just be, it would be, it's a game changer. So for me, that's what's so exciting. Uh, There are many things exciting about the American Girl Project, but one of them is just being able to equip more children with these ability, you know, to be able to, to just have the conversation and, and get past all this, you know, whatever it is that, that blocks us from, from making moves and moving faster. I don't want them talking about, oh yeah, that was there decades ago. They, they could, they could wipe this out. On the other side, I think, you know, working on action, speak louder. It's actually a book I've written like four times, right. In different ways, because in different ways, and trying to figure out what would be the best, like most impactful way. Um, and this last iteration, I'm so proud of it. And the reason why I'm so proud of it is because I think this is the iteration that really gets to the heart of what I think is happening in a lot of our organizations. And that is that people have that, you know, fear and all that other stuff that we have built up in them as children that they're bringing into the workspace. But they also have, and I think it's more powerful, they have hope 
right? They have a strong desire to create more community. They want to make a change and a difference. I think the gap is that they don't have the tools. So what gets me excited about this book is to be able to add to, you know, like the wonderful work that you're doing, the wonderful work that some of our other colleagues are doing in this space, but to add more into the toolkit, right? To add more so that when they're in these spots and they're like, I really want to do this, but I'm afraid, but I really want to do this and I know it can make a change, but how do I do it? And what are the two? Like, that's exciting. So that's a, a really cool thing. And I guess the other thing I would just share with you uh, that has made all of these things come together is that the University of Wisconsin Madison School of Business invited us uh, to write and deliver their certification program in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So right now we are in our first cohort of going through the professional certificate uh, for DEI, but I'm seeing all of these things culminate together, right? Like all of them, even though they may seem like they're disparate, they're all building on one another. And so, so thrilled at what our students are able to do because now they can impact more people and you could create all these ripples. Like every time a person reads a book, that's a new ripple. Every time a person comes to a class, new ripple. Every time they listen to the podcast, new ripple. Right? Jay, I'm tired. Uh, can you <laughs> like break? I, I mean, I'm, I'm tired. Like literally, yeah, so. you know, t- Tom Joyner used to call himself the hardest working man in radio. Uh, I didn't understand how he did it, how he hit all of these cities. <laughs> how they did the traffic report. I didn't understand any of that. I just knew that seamlessly, no matter where you were and you heard him, it worked. Deanna is working. You can find her at DeannaSing.com. That's not the closeout. (laughs) I'm going to give it to Jay because I'm tired right now. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I have two questions. Yes. The first one is how do you feel about Aaron Rodgers potentially leaving the Packers? So I have no comment because I am not following it at all. Uh, and I knew it. Come on. <laughs> you don't have time because you're so busy doing things. <laughs> um, and the other question, if we're thinking about, and I'm definitely going to try to attend how to be an ally. Uh, I think Torn and I work on that together constantly. What would be one takeaway, one impactful thing you could leave our audience with about being a better ally, whether it's to people with disabilities, people of color, women, whoever, one action item? Yeah, I would say look inward. There's a lot of people out here trying to point fingers, trying to get other people right uh, in line and haven't spent that time doing some of the reflection, the internal reflection about where they are honestly, and where where they're struggling. And I think that how powerful would it be if we all had that moment or those opportunities for introspection? It put us out of business, but I'd be okay with it, right? Because if we had that power of introspection and what am I doing and how am I advancing things and really looking inwardly, I think we would, uh, we would see much greater advancement. And the leaders that I work with who do that well, who are consistently thinking about how could I do this better? How did I show up in this space? What else, where are my other gaps? What makes me most uncomfortable, right? Asking those, those questions on, on repeat, those are the ones who are the most effective. So let me just say that uh, Deanna Singh has been voted Milwaukee's biz, Milwaukee Business Journal's uh, most influential 40 under 40. She was one of eight under 40 to watch for the university of Wisconsin School of Business, which she mentioned just a moment ago, United Way's Philanthropic Five Award, Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction Leadership Development Hero Award, White House Fellowship Regional 
finalists. Deanna, do us a favor and just let people know where they can find you across all of social media. And then um, you, my dear, have been a treat to have on Crazy and the King. Oh, well, thank you. It has been a treat to be on the show, too. You can find us at uh, DeannaSing.com. There you can actually see all of the brands for Flying Elephants. So it's just DeannaSing.com. If you're specifically looking for our diversity, equity, and inclusion work, you can find us on UpliftingImpact.com. Deanna, spelled D-E-A-N-N-A, Sing, S-I-N-G-H, DeannaSing.com. Jay, name drop. Um, Dr. Jen Fromm, uh, who's on Twitter at J-E-N-F-R-A-H-M, Jen yep. Fromm, um, author Fromm. of Change Leader and actually a lot of other books um, for her love uh, to Crazy and the King this week. We appreciate uh, the name drops you gave us. Absolutely. And I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe and to find your voice. Be a better human. Let's create better culture teams and workplaces. For now, Jay and I are ghosts. See ya. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.